little side note, when uh, we first met, he knows this story, we were in class together in graduate school, and our professor asked us to, or asked him to pray right before one of the, the classes. And, you know, so everybody bows their head, and he's sitting behind me. We had just met, and he starts praying. And in the middle of the prayer, I'm like, who is that? <laughs> because it was so powerful and just so in tune with God. So thank you. Very hard act to follow from last week, Rick. <laughs> Well, let me start out with prayer. Father God, you have given us a word this morning that uh, we just want to um, lift up to you to know that uh, you are speaking through this text this morning. Um, We ask that you just um, open our hearts, open our minds, um, open ourselves up to what you have for us this morning. We We pray that you will speak to each and every one of us in this text um, and that we may leave here knowing more about you through this passage. Um, It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, um, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open up and follow along. And while you're looking for it, I came across this really cool quote Um, from Martin Luther that I just wanted to share because it feels like, to me, this is something that um, just resonated. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And this passage that we're going to look at today is one that I feel like God has just been speaking to me and I hope speaks to you, but has been speaking to me for the last couple months. Um, I heard a a pastor speak on 2 Corinthians 5 a couple months ago, and I've just been marinating in it over the last two months. And so when Pastor Ernie asked me to speak, it just, it was so clear that this is what I needed to speak on, because it's just what's been on my heart over the last couple months. So I hope that it's also what um, God has for you this morning, not just me. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start in for, on uh, chapter 5, verse 14. And I'm reading from the NIV, but this is the, um, uh, what is that, the American, Sta- yeah, New American Standard. So it's going to be a slightly different than what's up there, but um, it's close enough. Okay. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. 
we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the time of God's salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Yeah, right there, I could stop, sit down. <laughs> Paul said it, Paul said it. So let me give you a little bit of background. I always find that it's helpful to know where this is coming from. What's happening here? Why is this being written? And it is actually very telling for what our church is going through right now. So what we know about 2 Corinthians is that it is a letter written by Paul sometime in about the mid-50s A.D. He wrote this letter to a church where he had already spent a good amount of time preaching and ministering to them. He spent 18 months with them, which for Paul was actually a really long time. Um, and he stayed that long because God actually told him to do so. We can see in Acts 18 where God says, Do not be afraid. Keep speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul actually stays a lot longer than he does in any of his other ministries. And he stayed with Priscilla and Aquila during that time. So not only is he you know, meeting with the church, but he's also meeting with this incredibly powerful couple that he's there while he's there. Now, Corinth is a city that's about 45 miles from Athens, the capital of Greece. At that time, it was a city that had its own rebirth. The Romans had destroyed it and then decided to rebuild it in about 44 BC. So it's a Roman colony, and it was taken over by Rome from the Greeks. So we've got these two... Uh, cultures happening here. It's a, a port city, and it actually has two ports to it. So it has a port on the north part and a port on the 
the South Port part. And if we know anything about that time, when you have ports, it means that there's money coming through because they have goods coming in and goods that are being tra traded. But it's also at this juncture of the isthmus that connects, it's called the Peloponnese Peninsula, with the rest of Greece. So we've got this main road coming through Corinth on three different directions. Culturally, it is a Roman colony. Therefore, it had Roman culture, Roman religion, and it's still situated in Greece. So it also has the Greek philosophy, the Greek religions from prior to when Rome took over. In Paul's time, it had 26 different sacred places that were devoted to small g gods and small l lords, which were the Roman and Greek pantheon, so you've got the Roman and Greek gods, and mystery cults, which were predominantly um, this pagan community. So we're looking at really very much of a Gentile pagan community that Paul has then lived with and has ministered to over this time. It has a temple of Apollo and a temple of Aphrodite, and it has theaters that could seat up to 15,000 people. So this is a, a big, big city here that we're talking about. Like I said, it has a lot of money. Um, it has wealthy people. It has artisans. And it also has a large group of slaves who actually make up much of that population. One of the scholars that I read, his name's Gordon Fee, he describes Corinth as a fiery, independent spirit. He also says that it's New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. So we've got some place <laughs> that is just like where we're living right now, right now. Now, Paul is living with and ministering to this predominantly Gentile community, which means they don't have the Jewish history that we just spoke about in, in Hebrews. Um, the Hebrews people, they had that Jewish history. They had that law. They had that backing, that understanding of who God was. This is a group of people who didn't. They didn't have that. So he is speaking to this group of pagan converts um, and bringing Christianity to them, which also means they had a life before they were Christians. That was not very holy and not very righteous. Um, scholars actually believe that Paul wrote about four letters to this group of people. And what we have in our Bible is roughly three. We have 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians is thought to be two letters put together. But we've got a, a section of what Paul is saying back to these people. He made at least two trips to this group of people. Now, what we know from other parts of 2 Corinthians is that Paul is in between two of his visits. So he stayed for those 18 months, he ministered, um, and then he has left, and while he's gone, and here's the part that I think is very appropriate for us, 
his travel plans changed suddenly. He was supposed to come back and minister to the people, um, but his travel plans changed suddenly. Now this upset and discouraged a number of the people in the Corinthian church. They were hoping that their minister was going to be there for them, and yet he wasn't. So they were discouraged by this. The second thing that happened while he was gone is that some, and this is a quote, false prophets, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, have come into the church and are stirring things up. Now, I hope that's not me <laughs> coming into the church, stirring things up. But we've got this then group of people who are kind of changing how Paul has done ministry here. He has taken and said, everything goes back to God. And the false ministers and false apostles that are coming in are starting to say, no, look at us. Look at what we've done for God. And so it becomes about a self-enhancing um, process rather than focusing on God. So Paul then is writing to the Corinthians to turn them back to God, to say, hey, we got to redirect what's happening here. And he's trying to save that ministry for them. Now, I realize this is a lot of backstory, but I think it's also helpful for us to know where this context is so we know what is Paul trying to say to them and then what, what is Paul trying to say to us. So let's take a look at our scripture. We're going to start out in 14. Grab some water. The first part of it, for Christ's love compels us. I know up here or up there it did say controls us. I like the version of compels better because it, it feels like I have some, some choice in this, but yet Christ is compelling. That word seems so powerful. He's pulling us in. Oh, there we go. Christ's love compels us. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> Christ's love compels us. If I think about my wonderful husband last week and what he was talking about, that giving back, he gave us those examples of Wade Van Niekerk, that runner who gave his Olympic medal to his mother. And that compelling, I have to give this back to the woman who helped me get where I was. I feel like that's what Christ is talking about here. We've been compelled to go back to them. The second part of 15, it says, And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ has this pull on our hearts. And it's that pull because he died for us all. I feel like this is the part where we can say, Inter or enter conversion experience. Because I think we have that. And I'm going to sh uh, share some of my conversion story because I think it fits here. Um, I don't know if many of you know, but I was raised in the church. My mom is now a pastor, but she wasn't always. Um, but nevertheless, still raised in the church. My parents were raised in the church. Um, my grandmother was even the church secretary. 
And if I go back generation upon generation upon generation, I have records that say my family was part of the church. In fact, my mother's family came to the United States in order to have freedom for their religious purposes. They came back in the 1770s. So my family has been part of the church for generations and generations. And so I was raised in the church. I attended Sunday school. I even sung in the choir. Don't ask me to do that now. Um, <laughs> but when I was little, sung in the choir. Um, I received my first Bible when I was in fourth grade. And I was so excited when I received that Bible that I went home and I was determined every night I was going to read it, and I was going to read it cover to cover. And I made it through Genesis. <laughs> so lost interest. But I still had that Bible, and it still sat next to my bed um, every night. Um, I even, in middle school, won the contest of the best scripture finder. I was the fastest person. I beat out a guy named Terry Brown for the person who could find the scripture the fastest. Our, um, our Sunday school teacher said, we're going to have a contest. She would read out a scripture, and who could ever find it and read it the fastest? That was me. I beat out everybody, and right down to the last minute, Terry Brown beat him out. <laughs> when I was in eighth grade, my church actually got a new pastor. And that pastor sat down with me because he wanted to meet all the youth in the church. And he sat down with me personally, and he asked me, you know, if I knew who Jesus was. Well, of course I knew who Jesus was. I knew what Jesus did. I knew Jesus died on the cross for me. I'd learned that as a you know, little Sunday school girl. Um, and I knew that Jesus was our Savior. I knew these stories. This was not anything new in my life. By then, I had actually read more than just Genesis, thanks to my you know, Sunday school teachers. Um, so the pastor decided I was a cool person and I was a leader in the youth, and so he put me on what's known as the administrative board, which as a 13-year-old, it meant that I was part of the governing body of the church. Now, the interesting part of this that I was kind of a normal kid. You know, like I said, I'd been raised in the church. I knew who Jesus was, but I didn't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That was the difference. I don't think, looking back, that I was saved at that point. I don't think I had had a conversion experience. Now, I was leading the church. <laughs> I was on the leadership group of the, the, the church. I don't think I had... Jesus as Lord of my life. It wasn't until in between my sophomore and my junior year that that clicked for me. I went to summer camp um, with the church, so it was church camp, and I don't remember what the message was that night, but for some reason we were supposed to leave and uh, leave silently. So we weren't supposed to talk. And you all know I'm a very social person, so this was hard for me. But <laughs> I remember walking outside of the, the meeting hall and looking up at the stars. Now, this was in rural Indiana, and I grew up in Chicago. So rural Indiana had many, many more stars than I had ever seen before in the middle of the summer. 
than I typically see in Chicago, which, you know, has the lights, kind of like L.A. So I walked outside, and I looked at all the stars, and because I had been raised in the church, I knew that God said to Abraham, those stars are going to be your descendants. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the people, the stars in the sky. And I knew, because I had been raised in the church, that God said that for me. Because of Jesus, I was one of those stars. Now, something clicked at that moment, too, where I said, you know what, God? I know Jesus as my Savior because I knew what he did. He died on the cross for me. But I didn't know God as Lord. I didn't know Jesus as my Lord. And so it was that moment that I said, you know what? Jesus, I need you to be Lord of my life. I needed that second half of that conversion. From that moment on, we go back to this scripture. He died for us all that those who live should no longer live for ourselves. I no longer lived for myself at that moment because I asked God to be Lord of my life, not just Savior. He was already in my heart but now he had control of my life. Everything was different from that moment on. So, what happens when we have that kind of conversion? What happens to us when we now have Lord of our life and our lives are no longer ourselves? And that goes back to, where's my water? Our scripture this morning. Let's look at verses 16. 516, and we're going to kind of jump around here, 516 to 64. Our passage gives us kind of four identities, roles, new jobs once we have Christ as Lord of our life, where we're no longer living for ourselves. The first identity, I always like to talk about identity, I notice, but identity is that we are a new creation. So in our verse 17, we have, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Literally, from one minute to the next, once you accept Christ as both Lord and Savior, you are a new person, a new being. This old has passed away. The person that you were a minute ago is no longer there. You are new. Now, if you know me, Rick always laughs at me about this, I love watching those home improvement shows. <laughs> and obviously, lots of other people do too. My favorite is Fixer Upper. Yes, yes. Their tagline is, we take the worst house in the best neighborhood and turn it into our client's dream home. Now, most of the time, once they're done with their renovations, you hardly recognize the house. They will take down walls and you know, move it or just get rid of it. They'll open up walls and put in new windows so that they can let more light in. They reinforce foundations, they fix leaky roofs, uh, 
half the time when you look at these houses, you're like, this, this is not even the same house. Well, I think sin makes us the worst. Christ changes our lives to the point that we don't even recognize who we used to be. Because again, we're no longer living for ourselves. We are this new creation. All of our sin cleared out, washed away. The grunge, the grime, the dirt, the yuckiness changed. Walls that we might have had around our heart, no longer there. Windows, open up the light, let it come in. Christ does that for us. We have been structurally changed so that we don't even look like the same person we used to be. And people might say, I knew you were Patty, but something is different about you now. I knew you were you, but ah, I, I can't put my finger on it. Something is different. And it's because all of that and the internal stuff has been cleared out, changed, and it's beautiful now, thanks to Christ's blood. Now, our second is a new role. If we look at verse 20, so 5 verse 20, it says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are Christ's ambassadors. When I think of what an ambassador does, it means that they represent, they speak on his behalf. An ambassador's role, if we take it into you know, the U.S. here, an ambassador's role is actually to represent the government or the entity from which they're coming from. For our country, uh, we need to be, uh, an ambassador needs to be nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. Two bodies of our government want to make sure that this individual is going to represent us appropriately and respectfully. They are to be representative so they can speak for our country, speak on behalf of our country, but also they're to maintain good relations with the country that they are now in. I looked and saw, uh, found out some trivia about ambassadors for the United States. And although the term ambassador was not used until 1893, we used the title of foreign minister prior to that. Our first ambassador was actually Benjamin Franklin, who during the, the Revolutionary War, 1776, was sent over to France to help us and gain up some support so that we could actually win this war. Um, six of our U.S. presidents have been foreign ministers. Since it changed to ambassador, we haven't had any U.S. presidents uh, that were ambassadors, but we have had children of ambassadors. Joe Kennedy was an ambassador, so John Kennedy became president, and uh, George Bush Sr., his father, was an ambassador, and we now had him as president. We had a former child actress, Shirley Temple, as an ambassador to two different countries, Ghana and Czechoslovakia. And right now, we have diplomatic relations with about 180 different countries. So we've got about 180 ambassadors to 
other countries. This, for our country, is a very elite, select few. So remember, it has to be the president who nominates and the Senate who confirms. This is a very, very select number of people. Now contrast that with Christ's ambassadors. There are 2.2 billion Christians in the world of 6.9 billion people. That's 31% of the population. We are new creations. God can use any single one of us to represent him in this world, and he does. We are his ambassadors. We get to represent him. We get to speak for him. To me, that's a huge responsibility, huge. But we do that through Christ because we are a new creation. Number three, we've got, we are God's fellow workers. If we look at verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. As fellow workers, we work alongside God. We work alongside Christ. The disciples did this with Jesus. They went, went with Jesus and were with Jesus when he was preaching to the masses. Um, when Jesus decided to feed the 5,000, because they had all been listening to him, 5,000 plus, um, the disciples were the one who were scouring through the crowds looking for food brought the food back, and then the disciples were the ones that were out there distributing what Christ had done when he broke the loaves and broke the fish and fed the 5,000. Uh, the Jesus, Jesus gave the disciples the power and the authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases and to preach the kingdom of God. And he gave them the authority to heal the sick. The disciples were very much working alongside Jesus. They were watching him. They were doing what he was doing. They were working alongside him. Jesus and Peter, after the resurrection, were sitting there. This is John 21, 15, where um, they're sitting and they're eat they have just finished eating, and Jesus turns to Peter and in a process of asking questions, starts to restore Peter. Peter had just betrayed God, and now Jesus was restoring him. So he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And of course, Peter says, yes, Lord, of course I love you. He says, feed my lambs. Now Peter gets this question three times. Peter, do you love me? And he comes back, yes, Lord, of course I do. And in some form, Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend to my sheep. That, I think, is us working alongside God, tending to the sheep. In James 1, 27, 7, 20, James 1, 27, we've been charged to take care of the poor, the widows, the orphans, in other words, the community. So working alongside Jesus, we are taking care of the community. We are healing 
We are uh, feeding the poor, tending to the God's sheep. Jesus healed people. Jesus fed people. Jesus preached about the kingdom of God. When I think about what we're doing in ministry now, I want to see where God is moving, and I want to get alongside of that. I'm a, a, on the alumni council at uh, Fuller Seminary, where I graduated from, and I get so excited hearing about what God is doing in all of the other people's lives that I actually want to like move to Minnesota because God is moving there. <laughs> and that's just cool. I want to come alongside it because this is what God is doing. So I want to be a fellow worker with God. Again, that's responsibility. But I want to come alongside God and do what he's doing. I want to be where he's moving. Our fourth one, our new role, new identity, new job, is that we are servants of God. And this is in verse 6-4. We work for him. It says, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So, we are working for God. In Jesus' last moments with his disciples, we can read in Acts 1, where he tells them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has sent by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are to be witnesses for him. At the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Jesus tells his disciples, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That is typically known as the Great Commission. That's our commission as well, to go and work for God, being witnesses, being disciples, baptizing, and teaching. With the Holy Spirit inside of us, we can do things that we did not believe that we can do. Working for him means that the Spirit is working through us. And we can recognize that Spirit by actions. Galatians 5, 22 to 25. This is known as the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have been crucified, or excuse me, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. We work for him. We are showing those fruits of the Spirit when, again, we go out there and we care for our community. We take care of our neighbors. We take care of people. We are working for him as servants of God. So Christ has compelled us. We now no longer live for ourselves. We are living with Christ. We are a new creation. 
We are ambassadors who can represent Christ. We are fellow workers who work alongside Christ. And we are servants who work for Christ. So what do we do with this? This is the application piece, too. Where are our actions? Where do we go with it? And our scripture tells us these things as well. The first one is if we look at 5.16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we were once regarded, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do know so no longer. We should be viewing the world from a godly point of view rather than a worldly point of view. The other night, Friday night, I was watching America's Got Talent. Don't know if any of you saw it. Yes, a couple of you saw it. I was really um, touched by uh, one of the singers that came on. I'm not a regular watcher, by the way, but I happened to be watching it. Um, there was a woman named Keshi. I think I'm saying that right, Keshi. And programs like this like to highlight, you know, the come from a long way kind of story. You know, somebody who uh, had some tragedy that's happened in their life and is now uh, overcoming that. They highlight that. This one was not much different, but I felt like it fit right here because this woman came out and she had a very kind of disformed face. She had had discoloration. She was uh, African and she had discoloration in her face. She looked like she had been wearing a wig. Um, and it turned out that she had been one of two people that had survived a plane crash in her home of Nigeria. And so what we were looking at, the disforming of her face, her fingers didn't bend all the way either, and she had what looked like very severe burns on her legs and on her arms. We see that it was her having survived this really incredible situation. She was, there were 109 passengers on this, this flight, and she was one of two that survived. Now, when she walked out, you could almost hear people, you know, like, whoa, something's, something's not right with her. If we looked at her the way the world looks at her, she is not a form of beauty at all because she's had so many skin grafts. You could just tell something has happened to her. But she sang, and what came out of her was so beautiful. You heard it, Becky, didn't you? Yeah, so beautiful that she actually made the finals. There were six people that were going on to the finals, and she was one of the six. I looked at that and said, wow, that is an example of what God does for us. He looks at what's on the inside, looks at our heart, looks at who we are in here, and that might be different than what the world sees from, for us. The world could look at her and say, oh, ee, what, eh, not a form of beauty. And yet what came out of her was so beautiful. I actually hope she wins. <laughs> and she has a chance, I think. Her body's disformed, and yet God is looking at the inside. 
God looks at our hearts. He did that with David, too. David, the youngest of eight children with Jesse. Jesse didn't even bring David to present him in front of Samuel. And he's out, David's out in the fields. And yet, God said, no, I don't want any of these seven older brothers. I want David because I look at his heart. I look at who this man is. I look at his character. That's how we should be looking at other people. We should be looking at that inside. We want to align with God to see the world as God sees it, not as the world sees it. Our next action that we can do is this ministry of reconciliation. Let's look at 5, 18, and 19 to 20. 5, 18, 19, and 20. Note the number of times Paul says some form of the word reconcile. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. I'm going to jump down to the bottom of that. Be reconciled to God. If you read Paul enough, whenever he highlights things that much, it is something to pay attention to. He used some form of the term reconciliation five times in those three verses. I think that's important. So, reconciliation. It seems to be that it's here on two different planes. The first one is that God has reconciled us to himself. We know Romans 3, 22 to 23 this righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jews or Gentiles, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely by this grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Without what Christ has done, there was no way that we could reach God. Without Christ, we could never have entered into the Holy of Holies. We talked about that with um, uh, Hebrews and in Exodus. We could never speak to God face to face, and we could never be free from our sins. There's a chasm that is between us and God, and Christ is the one that reconciles us to God. Christ has built that bridge there's no more boundary between us and God because of what Christ has done. We are free to enter into that relationship because the curtain has been torn in two. It's not anything we did, but it's what comes from Christ. The second plane that we're going to be reconciled on is with the community. The scripture says they gave us the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. 
This goes back to meeting with people on that plane too. The ministry and the message. When Jesus healed the ten people afflicted with leprosy, he told them to go show yourselves to the priest. And they went and were cleansed. Jesus also healed one man with leprosy. And he told him, go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift of Moses commanded as a testimony to them. He wanted those people restored to the community. They had been ostracized. And the restoration happened when they were healed through Christ. When Jesus healed a demon-possessed man, he also tells him, return home and tell how much God has done for you. The reconciliation happens not just with God on this plane. That happens through Christ. But it also happens with the community. Paul, if we think about our context, Paul is actually addressing the conflict among the members of the community. He's addressing the false prophets. And he's saying, you know what? We need to be reconciled together and turn it all back to God. He's addressing that conflict among the members. Our last action is coming in 6-3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so our ministry will not be discredited. He then goes on to list trials and afflictions that are blatantly different than what the false prophets are teaching. The false prophets here in this letter are concerned with their own comfort and prestige. They're saying, look at me, look how great I am. And what Paul, I think, is saying is, here's a list of things that happen to people. And be genuine in your ministry. Be genuine in what has happened with you. Turn it all back to God, but be genuine with it. I so often hear that what gets in the way of people believing in Christ most often is Christians. And I think it's because we're not necessarily being genuine with what we are struggling with. I think we think we have to have it all together, and we don't. I think we think we have to be perfect and we don't. <laughs> we, like Paul, have had afflictions. We have had things happen to us. The first part of this list is stuff that I think happens to us. We have troubles. We have hardships. We have distress in our life. We might have been beaten. We might have been imprisoned. There's riots. There's hard work. There's sleepless nights. There's even hunger. That's stuff that's happened to us. And we could turn that back to God and be that minister back to God, saying, here's what's happened to me, and yet I still believe in God through all of this. The second part of this list that Paul goes into as well is how are we to act? We're to use those fruits of the Spirit. We're to be pure. We're to express understanding. We're to have patience, kindness, 
sincere love, and truthful speech. Now, the last two on this list, I don't think we can do without Christ. Because, and I don't think Paul says we can do without Christ either because he puts it in there. He says we have to do this truthful speech in the power of God and in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. I think it takes both of those to really have that sincere love for each other, that sincere kindness for each other the truthful speech for each other. It comes from that power of God. The third section here, too, is I, that Paul's in his list is how we are viewed by others that might be different than the world sees us. So we've got glory and dishonor. We've got bad report, good report. We've got genuine, yet people see us as being imposters. We've got people being known, but yet not really being known. Dying, yet live on. Beaten, but not killed. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. We might be poor, yet we're made rich in Christ. We might have absolutely nothing, yet we possess everything because of Christ. I really want to hone in on the actions as well. Especially in light of what happened yesterday in Charlottesville. These were not actions that I would say we are becoming of Christians. And I don't believe that the people who were out there rioting were Christians by any means. Because they had hatred of others. They had discord. They had fits of rage self-ambition, dissensions, factions, lack of self-control. That's actually the list, the opposite list from the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. My heart was weeping as I was watching everything that happened yesterday. And I don't want to be like that. <laughs> not that I think I would because I'm just not that kind of person, but I don't want the church to be like that either. I want the church to be filled with the fruits of the Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about here as well. The fruits of the Spirit show the purity, the understanding, the patience, the kindness, the sincere love. When I was a kid, one of my favorite sections of the church time was actually the greeting time. And the greeting time when I was a kid, we would walk around and we would sing a song as we shook everybody's hand. Now, I love it here because we actually check in with each other and I think that's actually better. But this always stood out to me when I was a kid because we would shake everybody's hand to the song, they will know we are Christians by our love. No, I'm not going to sing it because, again, I told you, I was in the choir when I was little. You don't want me to do that now. But here's the lyrics. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity will one day be restored. I always cry when I get up here. And they know we are Christians by our love, by our love. 
Yes, they will know we are Christians by our love. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And we will guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. And they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they will know we are Christians by our love. That's what I think this is about. We get the opportunity as Christians to be Christ's ambassadors. We get to represent Christ. We get to work alongside Christ as a fellow worker. We get to be servants of Christ. And we get to go out into that community and be that for people. We don't want to put stumbling blocks in other people's way. We want to be the Christians that they say, you know what, this person is so genuine and they have turned it all back to God. I want to know that God. That's who we want to be. Now bringing it back to the context of this letter, Paul is writing to this group of people in a very rich cultural city, very much like Los Angeles, whose minister has just made these unusual change in plans. And they're disgruntled. They're discouraged. There's false prophets. There's false teachers in their midst. Now I'm hoping that as we have this array of people coming in after me as well, we don't have false prophets in our midst. But what we're going to do is everything that we do, we're going to turn it back to God. We are going to keep that light focused on Christ compelling us to be who we are through him. We are doing everything to share Christ's love, to be genuine in our struggles, our successes, to be reminded for ourselves that we're new creations. And again, we get to be the ambassadors, the fellow workers, and the servants of a living God who are no longer living for ourselves, but who died for us and for our community, and therefore are raised again. Now, this passage was obviously for people who already know Christ, who have that conversion experience. If you don't know who Christ is, if you don't know who that love, that Savior, and, that, and have Christ as that Lord of your life, it's very easy to do that. All it takes is saying, God, I want you to take my life. I want to put my life in your hand. So we're going to take some time just to pray as Lucas comes up. <laughs> if you want to know that Christ, want to know that person, want to get to know who Christ is and know that love, all it takes is praying and asking him to do that. So while they're going to start, I encourage you to just pray, God, take my life. I'm putting my life in your hands. <laughs> 